Hello, I'm Bruce McGeckin and this is the Curious Kiwi Capitalist Podcast. My guest for this show is Richard Hyam. Richard is one of the top business academic practitioners in New Zealand history. He has not only experienced but researched and studied entrepreneurship. He has run his own firm, consulted to large corporates about entrepreneurship, saw the start of venture capital in New Zealand before venture capital was even really a word. Now in his 80s, he's still going strong as you'll see. He is the master of the rhetorical question and pretty much ran this interview himself. In this show, we'll discuss entrepreneurship and the early days of venture capital in New Zealand, including the king, the castle and le entrepreneur, early venture capital in New Zealand, including 262, that is two winners only, the Saudi King and Saudi Corp in New Zealand, Graham Hart, his MBA in financial wizardry, process versus product innovation, large corporates and the corporate immune system, Death Valley and going up the S-curve, and the fact that prospective entrepreneurs make up less than 10% of the New Zealand population. Richard Hyam still lectures at Otago University. The lectures are run at the same speed you hear in the episode. Always a sprint, but always time for a student. I believe he was a pathfinder for many New Zealand entrepreneurs. He studied at Oxford. As a young man, worked at Imperial Chemical Industries. Went to London Business School as a Sloan Scholar. And worked at various times over the decades in the Auckland and Otago MBA programs. Richard was my master's thesis supervisor at Otago University, as well as my favourite lecturer. Indeed, of the eight courses I took in that program, he ran three of them, all of them practical and useful today in representing or investing in high-growth companies. Richard's played rugby, he's been heavily involved in coaching and leading the Otago University Rugby Club, and we'll talk a bit about his popular newsletter, Blues News. Without further ado, let's go to the interview. Thanks, Richard, for, um, for for coming along to this episode about entrepreneurship, perhaps a little bit about the history of venture capital. I uh, remember my time fondly here at Otago University and the courses that uh, that you, you taught. Let's kick it off by asking you about entrepreneurship. What is entrepreneurship? What is entrepreneurship? Well, it started off years and years and years and years ago in France where the entrepreneur built castles for the king. And the king said, I want a castle. And someone came along and said, I know how to get a castle for you, and it'll cost you so much. So this was really a demand-side initiative. The king wanted something, and an entrepreneur in France, l'entrepreneur, provided it. And this went on being the fashion in France for generation after generation after generation until things changed. Because what happened was that people started not responding to demand, by, but by taking initiatives. They started something themselves. And some people who started things were accused of being against the law. You can't do this. You can't simply change things like this. And one chappy wrote an article about it way back in the 1720s, in which he maintained that the entrepreneur on the demand side was equally the same as the entrepreneur on the supply side. Someone supplying something new was just as justified in the economy as someone responding to someone who wanted something new. 
And this was the birth of the supply-side entrepreneur, the person who takes an initiative, does something new, pursues it to the ultimate that they can, trying to find customers, a totally different routine from responding to the king who wants a castle. Now this went on for year after year after year, with studies being undertaken in Austria. The Austrian professors wanted to know why it was that people in Austria were initiating things and other people were not. And they wrote pamphlets and books about the supply-side entrepreneur and refined the theory of them. And one chap who sat at the feet of the professors was a man called Joseph Schumpeter. And he was an ideal student. He got A's in everything. And he absorbed all the things that these Austrian, Vienna-based professors talked about entrepreneurship. And years later, when he'd done his PhD in 1910, he wrote a book about it. And it came out in 1933. And he said, what we want is more people taking initiatives in the economy. Look at the way that we're facing a terrible depression. The depression would be solved if people just did some new things and hired some more people to do more new things. And if they did that, we would have a depression no longer. But the theory by the economist at the time was that the economy would solve itself. If there was a depression, people would price their labor so low that others would take it up and make something out of it. But it wasn't happening. It was not happening. And Schumpeter saw it not happening. And he was exasperated by it. And he said, we want more initiatives on the supply side. And people simply laughed at him. And they went on laughing. And they went on laughing for year after year after year. His theories were simply abandoned as being ridiculous. In 1970, I was at the London Business School as a student. And no less than the Austrian-Hungarian um, communist-run regime asked the business school for a deputation to go along and advise them on how to make their economy better. And I was part of that deputation going over. We went over to the heartland of Schumpeterian economics. We went there. <laughs> and you know, we had never heard of Schumpeter, and I tell you the truth, nor had they. This was the place where he wrote. This is the place where he came up with his theories. They'd never... Well, I realise now that they'd never heard of him. They had no idea about supply-side entrepreneurship, which was what they needed. And we went there and we ponced about telling them all about capital, big capital, communist capital. But when the communists ran things, they ran things for the sake of the people's being employed. You couldn't be unemployed in that place. If you were unemployed, you simply had to go along and get a job at the local ironworks. And when you went there and they said, what is your skill? I'm a peasant. Oh, well, you better grow some flowers then. And the gardens at these ironworks in a place that we visited called Miskolch were enormous. In fact, that ironworks employed... 1,500 gardeners and 500 ironworkers. Do you believe me? <laughs> this do. was true. I do. Come this was true. And we met the board there, and they had one man who was supposed to know about entrepreneurship who'd been a grocer before the war. He'd employed two people in his grocery shop. And at the end of the war, they'd imprisoned him for three years for employing himself and two others in small business entrepreneuring. And it was illegal in communist countries, so they put him in prison. Now they brought him back and said, advise us 
about how to run this place better, and all he knew about was being a grocer. We came back to London thinking we'd done a good job, where in fact we had absolutely, totally, 100%, 1,000% missed the bus. Mm-hmm. We had no idea what we were talking about. Years later, in fact, 13 years later, things changed. A man called Drucker, do you know where he came from? Austria. Oh, I was going to say America. Austria. Austria. No, it was Austria. Oh, no, no, no. He came, he, he was chucked out by the communists, and he went to America, and he started writing about, guess what? Entrepreneurship. And he wrote a book called Innovation and Entrepreneurship, and it came out in 1983. And he wrote about not what it did for the economy so much, although he had theories about that, of course, but how to do it. And others read his book, and they thought, now this sounds interesting. And by 1986, three years later, a whole cycle of books had come out about initiatives on the supply side, entrepreneurship as a way to get the economy moving, uh, the replacement of jobs. A man called Birch came out. Birch came out with his um, measurement of how many jobs were created by various sectors in the economy. And when he looked at it, he thought, that's funny, the small business getting all these jobs. And he discovered it wasn't the small business, it was the small business entrepreneurs growing. Right. So he, he published his stuff about the new theory of job creation. The entrepreneur on the supply side is the person who launches something, maybe it's difficult, takes some time, starts getting employment, hiring people, and grows fast. And entrepreneurship became the study of fast growth, risk-taking, innovation, new ventures, all these things that we now know all about because people have discovered entrepreneurship, what it is. So in 1983 to 1986, out came books, a book by Brandt, book by Christensen, book by Drucker, book by Birch, book by many other people talking about what entrepreneurship actually meant in the economy. Now, I went back to London Business School in 1986 to teach entrepreneurship. And I tell you what, I still had absolutely no idea what it was. I stood up in front of the MBA class at London Business School to talk about entrepreneurship, and I started off talking about small businesses. But the director of what they actually called the Small Business Centre, because they still believed that entrepreneurship was small business, even in 86. He had got some people who called themselves venture investors to come and talk to the class. Who were these people? I'll tell you. They were people who'd been employed in large organisations and they had been on the finance side and they had seen people coming up with new ideas in large corporations and not getting any help and being turned down. And one or two of them said, there's money to be made in this if we get it right. And they had left the large corporation and they'd gone to the marketplace private, privately and said, give us a few million and we'll back new ventures and see if we can make some money. And they came to the business school in London to tell us what they were doing. Now, they weren't yet successful but they had a routine, and they learned the routine from the Americans. What about poor old New Zealand? What about poor little New Zealand? Not skittled out by the most falls this time, but skittled out because we didn't have those sorts of adventure investors. We didn't have them? Well, someone thought that we should have them. And that was a man, basically, in the Development Finance Corporation called Graham Crocombe. 
and he was dead set on developing the Development Finance Corporation, which was a government-run bank for backing business, to back new business. And he persuaded his bosses in Auckland to send him to a place called Harvard. Now, Harvard's in America, and at Harvard you do the MBA, and he went there to do the MBA. And when he got there, somebody came to the business school there and talked about venture investing. Just the same as when I was at London Business School, the same year, he was at Harvard listening to the same stuff. <laughs> and then he came back to New Zealand. Now, by the time that happened, I hadn't got a job to come back to because I'm afraid, being entrepreneurial, I'd had to leave the large corporation known as Otago University to go and teach at London Business School. They thought it was a silly idea. I'd had to leave. I'd had to resign. So when I left the London Business School after a year of teaching there, it was a contract for a year, I had no job. But I was entrepreneurial. And a man at Auckland University heard about what I'd been doing at London. His name was Professor Brian Henschel. And he sent me an email. He was Sloan Fellow, they called it, at Harvard Business School. I was a Sloan Fellow. This is a study, studies um, um, uh, uh, program at London Business School, and so he knew me and I knew him vaguely, and he sent me a note saying, come to Auckland, we need you to come and talk about venture investing. And so I came back to Auckland and also came back uh, Graham Crocombe from Harvard, and he was persuaded by Henschel to come along and do a lecture at the uh, Auckland University on what he learned about venture investing in Harvard and what I had learned about venture investing in London. What had we learned? What we'd learned was this. Venture investing for new independent initiatives is tricky. What it requires is persons with money, disposable cash, to go in and buy shares. Can they buy shares and pick winners? No. You cannot pick winners among entrepreneurs. What you have to do is to invest in a portfolio of 5, 10, 15 companies. What happens then when you've invested in 5 to say 10, say 10 companies? Doing your very best and in fact looking at 300 plans, refining them down to 30 proposals, and investing in 10, it is so risky that out of those 10, the best you can expect is to surge and make a fortune for you, to go belly up in the first three years, and the other six putter along and simply end up as small companies. The great rule is 262. 262. Two make a fortune, two go belly up, and six putter along and make nothing for you. And the two that make a fortune compensate for all the others. And if you get it right, so we learned, if you get it right, then you will expect to make 30% on your capital, where the best at that time um, uh, shareholders will make perhaps 15% on their capital, and everyone else made 5, 10, 8% on their loans. That was about the, the way it went. So 262. Now then, when you made the deal with those entrepreneurs who were seeking to expand fast, what, could you, what should you look for? Well, these were financial people 
And they were not looking so much as the likelihood of it succeeding in the marketplace because no one could tell them that. What they were looking for was a very, very good plan, well drawn up and, and well criticized, um, which offered to make not 30% on your money, but 70% on your money. If you found 10 of those, then those would end up by making overall 30% with 262. So you had to buy shares in firms that promised to make a very substantial return on that investment, bank money and shareholder money. Right, now, how many of them actually made it? Well, as I say, 262. But out of those 70 percenters, you hope to invest in the 10 very best ones and make money. What else did you look for? You looked for the character of the entrepreneur. They had to have good technology. They had to have a, a overarching um, determination to make the thing succeed and to make money for themselves. They were driven by, 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 the, by the returns they were going to make. And they had to be innovative. They had to think of something new, not just the same old stuff. You then put your money in, you watch them, you help them as much as you possibly could, and in the end, you had to sell out. Now, how many of the shares in the company would you expect to be able to buy? You can't buy them all. I mean, the venture investor can buy some of them, not all of them, because the person who's starting the firm wants to, to own the firm. So the routine was buy about 30 to 35%, with the promise this was just an initial investment. And that 30 to 35%, would be very, very helpful to the person to get going, but they would run into difficulties, they would run into cash flow problems, and you would be able to invest more, perhaps another 20%, you're getting down to 50, perhaps 25%, you're getting to 55, and technically you could be in charge of the company. And so the routine for the venture investor, by the best advice from America, basically Harvard, but also of course the, um, the Californian experience, was that by the time you got to owning 50, 55, 60% of the company, you had to so-called syndicate. What syndicating was, find another venture investor to come in as a second party, and he'd buy, or she'd buy, the second 25%, adding up to 55%. Um, you'd have 30, he'd have, or she'd have 25, 55%. Then the third round of finance, you might find another one to come in. And by syndication, these venture investors could, the, the word is not pee in each other's pockets, but that's what they did. They helped each other to get the best ones yes. shared out. And this was a, a sort of um, a syndication move by venture investors in California who were very successful at it, and it became the fashion to be done elsewhere. When it came to selling the shares, this is when you made your money. It might be after three years, hopefully, but it was usually after five, six, or seven. And when you sold the shares, you'd expect to make six or seven times what you'd put in. But over the years, this would make you 30% on your investment. Now, who was going to do it? Who was going to do it? <coughs> I'll have to tell you who was going to do it. Professor Henschel. Professor Henschel initiated when... Um, when Crocombe came back, he initiated a small venture capital fund, and it was called Pacific Venture Capital. And it was invented by him and by a student who came, in fact, from this University of Otago with an MBA. I've forgotten his name, but he used to work for Air New Zealand, and I could recognize his face in the street immediately. And these two set up Pacific Venture Capital. It wasn't very big. It was $3 million. It was 
genetically small, but it started things. And they would bring people to the university with ideas. They would not just think to invest in them, but they'd get them to explain to the classes what they were trying to do as entrepreneurs. And this was a very, very small startup in New Zealand. And, and Richard, this was 1980... 1986. 86. 86, or 87, when I came back from London Business School. And at the same time, there was a very, very wealthy man who happened to be visiting the country um, uh, on a sort of trade mission, and he was the king from Saudi Arabia. Huh. And what did he do? He thought, this little place here in New Zealand rather fun. I might drop a bit of money in here. And he left $3 million. $3 million. That's not much. But then when he went back to Saudi Arabia and he heard about venture capital and doing new things in oil and so forth, he wrote back to his friends here and said, make this Saudi Corp, call it Saudi Corp, and start investing and raising money. And I'll put some more in. And he put in more millions and more millions. And Saudi Corp, found a very, very capable accountant-trained man called Owen McShane. And he'd been talking venture investing for some years before this. He'd thought about it and learnt about it. And he became the manager of Saudi Corp. And Saudi Corp launched big in New Zealand. And they followed the right routines. They made money for the prince in Saud. They made money for their shareholders, which were wide-ranging by the time they finished. Um, and he gave way after two or three years to another man, Bob Wilton. Now, Bob Wilton was an accountant. He was a very skilled financier. He came into Saudi Corp and expanded dramatically and ended up as a professor of finance at the University of Auckland and taught venture investing. So it all became huh. part of the routine. It became part of the routine. Huh. Well, who was out there actually bringing new ideas to the marketplace? Now, I'm not thinking of persons who are financial engineers, and I'm fighting for a name here, um, for the richest man in New Zealand who came to do the MBA here. Um, oh, Hart. Now, Graham Hart, I met Graham Hart, and he was a very, very clever financial wizard. And I thought to myself, this guy is a potential venture investor. But his routine was quite different. What he did was, he didn't go into new situations. He went into existing situations which hadn't yet learned about entrepreneuring and were dying on their feet. Uh. And he bid for their shares and got the shares. And then he went in and entrepreneured the result with fire all the managers who are bloody useless, get rid of all the people who are deadbeat, put in my own team so that the, the total amount of money spent on running the company went like that. Yes. That was what, what he could earn for his pocket, you know, for, for his return on shares. And, of course, you then sell the company, very well run, and make a lot of money. And he expanded, expanded, expanded. And, in fact, it was a venture routine, an entrepreneurial venture routine of his own. And he went on. He came to do the MBA down here. And I came down from Auckland University to teach entrepreneurship here with him in the class. And he was an extraordinary example of the skill in that kind of financial engineering entrepreneurship. But that's not real entrepreneurship, the way that the innovators go. They are the sort of man who's sitting in the, in the back blocks somewhere in a large company who's developing something totally new. The sort of inventiveness of large organizations' engineers is absolutely legendary. And I'll have to tell you that before all this happened with me, I worked in a company called Imperial Chemical 
Industries. First job after my university, Oxford University, was Imperial Chemical Industries. They made a fool of themselves by going to China and putting up a stand at an exhibition there in which they translated Imperial Chemical Industries as Imperialist Chemical Industries. It was a disaster for them. (laughs) But that firm in the 1920s and 1930s had been the innovators in the chemical industry. They'd been the entrepreneurial venture which started off in the 1925s uh, with Brunamond and so forth, and they expanded and expanded and expanded. And when I joined them, they were still at the last, last gasp of their entrepreneurship. And they were telling each other, we don't need to do this anymore. We don't need to be inventive anymore. We've done it all. We can survive on what we know. And they survived on what they knew. And I was in a bit which had been, in fact, a new venture some years before. And it was still new venturing. And I'll tell you how clever these engineers were. What we did was we made plastic film. We made it by a process called the bubble process. Up in the sky there somewhere, 40 meters up in the air, um, you extruded a tube of plastic. Polypropylene was what we did. Polythene would be the other one that was big. Polypropylene was new, and we had to work out how to do it. But they worked out how to do it. They, they extruded this plastic tube, and they put hot air inside and outside, and more inside than out. So it went, and they heat it with heat, and it bubbled out into a great shimmering 30 meters across bubble of film. And it came down to the sky, falling molten. As it came down, it was hardened, huh. and they reeled it off. Now then, this was polypropylene film, which in my early career in ICI, I went out on the road selling as a way of packaging biscuits. What a thought. My look, I loved doing it, but it was, it was just what a stage in one's career. But in America, there was a company which was making polypropylene film, not like that, but by a flatbed process. And they could make it far faster, far better, far thinner, far everything than we could. And we were being caught up by these people launching the stuff into the UK where I was working and beating us in the marketplace on price. And the ICI bosses turned to the engineers up on the plant and said, we need to make this thing cheaper. And the engineers said, okay. So what did they do? They blew a double bubble, two tubes coming down. One inside the other, slit as they fell, round off one way and the other way, and doubled the size of the plant in three months. How about that? That was incredible. I mean, the technology, it was all new. Now, this was process innovation. Process innovation is making the process work better. Product innovation is doing something entirely new with it. And at the same time in 1986, there was Abernathy and Adipak who were looking at the two sorts of innovation and claiming process innovation is fine for the big guys, but don't think it'll last forever because someone will come along with something entirely new and bowl you over. Product innovation and process innovation have to go together. And they were like Schumpeter, they were laughed at. But they were right. They were right. And if you look now at Imperial Chemical Industries, I have to tell you, The name is still there. It's owned by a Dutch company. And the original company, which I worked for, the biggest chemical company in the world when I was there, is dead. D-E-A-D. Gone. Finished. Over. No longer. Same with Kodak. 
Same with a lot of large companies. Why? Because having invented something and having got it going, they thought this was the name of the game. And it was, but it wasn't forever. And the people who were, like the engineers, able to do some new things with that with that plastic, they would think, well, why don't we do this? Why don't we print it in situ? Why don't we do this? Why don't we line it with something else? Why don't we do two together, like silver inside, to make it even... And they were told, no, we make polypropylene film. That's what we're here for. As if it was a God-given right to exist and what you did. So they left, came back to haunt the company. How long did it take the large firms to realize that they had to be both process and product innovative? Well, many of them still don't know. They still don't realize it. But the ones who do realize it, now, here's a problem. Once you've realized it, what can you do? Because what you're asking yourself is to employ some people on innovation and entrepreneurship who previously been employed on making things better, not different. So, but they're there, hiding in the woodwork there somewhere. They're all there trying to find something entirely new. So you have to find them. You have to ask them what they can do. You have to back them to a certain extent, not too much, not too much, just a bit. Get them going. Little cells, little cells, little innovative cells in a large organization. And that has become the name of the game for the large corporate. Corporate innovation is finding the innovators and backing the right ones and the other ones who maybe they have their ideas are a little bit too extreme. Well, they, they can go outside and do it outside there. And so you've got the venture investor who leaves and requires venture capital from outside. And you've got the venture investor inside who is there to develop something entirely new um, inside the firm. And, well, you're going you're gonna to eat yourself, aren't you? Because once this thing works, it's going to replace what you do already. Now, I have the pleasure of going out and advising some of New Zealand's largest companies on how to do this. And the struggle and the strain to get that corporate culture to change <laughs> from within. I mean, for even the people who are on the shop floor, they love the company. They love what they're doing. The University of Otago is like that. It loves what it's doing. Try to introduce some change into it, and you're fighting. You're fighting uphill. How do you do it? Well, what you do is you discover people who can be incubated. And that's the word we were trying to find before. The incubator is where you put the oddballs, not every, not all the right. time, but you put them in there and you get them to start thinking of doing something different. 50, 60, 70% of your time doing what you're doing already and the rest of it doing something which is entirely new. And you foster them and you help them, but they're only a small cell. And you explain to everyone else why they're there and why it's important that they're there. And they'll struggle to, to accommodate it because they think that what we do already is fine. But then they'll get going and they'll come back and they'll haunt the company with something new, but then gradually it'll, it'll find, its, find its feet and get going. Now, it isn't just large corporates in the world. Just to jump, jump in there, Richard, too. They, oh, of course. Westpac, for example, I know, <clears throat> has a, a venture capital company they've, they've set up, I think, in Australia, yes. outside of Westpac, That's but right. owned wholly by Westpac. That is, as I understand it, I don't know it well, is, is there to be a standalone venture capital company that actually 
invests in fintech companies, including right. one in, here in Dunedin that I know of. So uh, it, it seems like they are, they are trying to get both the inside and the outside approach. If you, if you try to get things going inside, it is so very difficult that you have on occasions to say, well, we simply can't do that. What we have to do is invent ourselves outside put the people in there, and then possibly bring them back later. And when they come back later, they'll come in with all their new ideas. But the idea of separation, it has to be separate, even if it's right bang within. It has to be in a building somewhere just over there where they're doing all these magic new things. It doesn't have to be bang inside the corporate. And if it is, they'll be watching it carefully. The corporate immune system is what it's called. <laughs> it is called the corporate immune Brandt called it the corporate immune system. What happens is they will gobble up and try to get rid of them because they're different. Now, a lot of firms have incubators now, but universities are really there because inside a university, you've got these clever scientists who are thinking of new things. Mm. Previously, they would have to go outside the university to try to find some backing, and they were regarded as a bit odd. I mean, the professor going outside and finding money to get a business going, as, remember the chemical, the, the professor of chemistry did that, and his building is just down the road there, and I remember his name, if I really tried, who went and invented something new in chemistry, and he ran that while at the same time being the professor of chemistry. And the university, I think, at the time thought, my goodness, what is happening here? Well, what should have happened would be that he should be encouraged inside in an incubator. And here at the University of Otago and other universities are just the same. We have an incubator, a glass building of magnificent proportion with wonderful facilities. And who gathers inside there? There's a director, and he encourages people who have new ideas from the university and some from outside it to come into the place, have a room, share their views with others and see how to get going, uh, see what the problems are going to be, and see what the what the um, uh, possibilities are. And this is where they come against two big factors. One, Death Valley. Two, up the S-curve. Now, I'm going to talk about Death Valley, first of all, because it's a really favourite expression of mine, Death Valley. What happened was that besides Graham Crocombe going over to Harvard and learning about new venturing, just before that, others from the Development Finance Corporation, the government-run bank in New Zealand, went over to America to learn about investment investment in not just new ideas, but old ideas as well. And they came up with the American expression, particularly in California, of Death Valley. What is Death Valley? Death Valley is when you start off with $100,000 and expect to make sales and profits to cover your borrowing of $100,000. What happens is that the $100,000 becomes $80,000, then $60,000, then and it goes down. You use it, and it hits the naught line. And when it hits the naught line, you should stop or get some more money. But you go along to the bank and say, we've just run out of that original one. Can we have a lot more? And they're going to say, what have you done with it? Well, we've spent it on getting going. Well, have you got going? No. Why not? I don't know. Just haven't. Well, you can't have any more money, so you're going to go into overdraft, down into Death Valley. And Death Valley is a long curve down, which in the end turns and comes back up again. 
there are two Death Valleys, actually. One is Death Valley of profitability. You start making money, and so the Death Valley starts to turn. But because you're financing debtors and stock and all that sort of stuff, the Death Valley cash goes on down, and then it turns. Does it turn? Oh, does it turn? I've seen people with worried brows pondering over, is it going to turn? The truth is, Death Valley, according to your plan, will be, so we say, minus $100,000. Death Valley, in reality, will be twice as far out, twice as far down. $200,000 in a year, rather than $100,000 in the first six months of the bottom of the pit. What can you do about it? What can you do about it? You can't do anything about it. It's going to be there. You're going to have a death valley. What you have to do is to persuade the shareholders, not the bank, the shareholders for a second round and a third round of finance. And that, remember, is where the venture investor comes in and starts to syndicate. And they will syndicate if they think it's going to turn and come back up again. Let's go back to Development Finance Corporation going to America and coming back with Death Valley. And I think in the 1980, all we heard about from the Development Finance Corporation was watch out for Death Valley. Watch out for Death Valley. We're all trying to avoid Death Valley. First of all, by not spending money. And secondly, by trying to find some more money. But the Development Finance Corporation itself borrowed money in Japan at 5% and then lent it on at 12%, and then the interest rates turned against them, and the interest rates charged by the Japanese lenders went up to 15%. And guess who died in Death Valley? Having pronounced death in Death Valley is the worst thing for a company, the Development Finance Corporation itself died in Death Valley. It died down there. It was down the bottom there. It couldn't get itself out of Death Valley. Borrowed short and, and lent long. That's right. By oh dear, oh dear, that's right. And, of course, bankers know about this, but the development was there for the government to invest in, in, in ventures, existing uh, ventures and, and new ventures. And they did a wonderful job. But, unfortunately, they miscalculated, and their Death Valley overwhelmed them. So having advised others not to go into Death Valley, or if you get in to get out as fast as you can, they themselves died there. What is the other thing? You're going to have a Death Valley. You're also going to have an S-curve. What is this S-curve? Well, people estimate how many people are going to buy from them. And obviously, because they're in love with their product, they reckon it's going to be a lot. And unless they've been to the university and learnt about Death Valley, or the Polytechnic learnt about Death Valley, or if the Development Finance Corporation was still there, from the, or from the bank and learnt about, not Death Valley, about S-curves, um, when they've learnt about it, they will realise why it is. What, what is it? When you go out and try to sell something, you'll go to ten people and get one who's interested, and they'll buy something. You expect five, you hope for eight, and you get one. So you're starting to build up the stocks ready for the, for the um, expansion of the firm. And unfortunately, not many people are buying. So the stock goes up, the cash goes down, and the people don't buy. The geometric progression of purchasing is 1, 3, 8, 15, 50. And that's how it goes. One person buys, 
persuades two friends and they buy three. Then he goes to five while people are thinking about it. Then he goes up and ends up at 50. And just when you think it's never going to go up, it soars. So you need more stock around Death Valley. And the S-curve is the worst possible slow acceleration of sales, then a huge surge that you'd ever expect from the point of view of your need for cash. But it's real. Look, it may be that it's not real if it doesn't take off at all. And you really want that that S-curve because you need to have the sales. But they're going to confound you with more stock, more debtors, more everything that you require in the company, more finance, therefore, to finance growth. And in the case of technology, more perhaps more customer services staff, uh, more engineers, uh, perhaps less of the stock, but certainly more of the uh, the, 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 the headcount, perhaps even marketing costs to do Let's with. look at an example. Um, years ago, a company in New Zealand sold fertilizer. Ravenstown, cooperative. Ravenstown sold fertilizer up and down the country. And they were very successful. And then they persuaded themselves, the new general manager, that they ought to look at other forms of service to the farmer. What forms of service to the farmer? Well, nowadays, when they put the fertilizer on the ground, they can tell you where they put it. They can tell you how much has gone on. They can tell you what it's done. They can tell you it isn't going into the, we hope for it, not into the rivers because they haven't put it, yeah. They have automatic feeders out of aeroplanes to put the right amount on the right place at the right time. And all this is totally new. No one knew about it before. Now, can you imagine the amount of effort it takes, first of all, to think that we ought to do it, and then actually to do it means a whole new division. And then you're going to go out and persuade the farmers that it's useful to have, to have this extra service, and it may cost a bit more money. So it's slow to take off. But once it takes off, it's like an aeroplane. It soars into the sky. And they have, I don't know their figures, but they have a substantial investment now in these, in these things new. Um, and it costs, and it's slow to get going. But once it gets going, then you're on the gravy train and it needs controlling. How fast can a company grow? Some companies grow at a hell of a fast rate. They need second round finance, they need third round finance, they need possibly corporate finance. And of course, the corporates are all looking around for possibilities to avoid being overtaken by them. And they will go along and they will say, look, we are big, you are small, you are growing, we think we may be able to help you. And they will be putting their thoughts together in how to invest in the company by way of buying more shares. But of course, buying more shares means milking the company's directors of their shares because if you're going to put a a whole lot more money in and you're going to get up to 80 or 90% of the firm, leaving 10%, what they will say is, listen, it's the old corporate venturing thing. Listen, 10% of an elephant is better than 90% of a mouse. And it is. It is. But that leaves 10% in your hands. And you're a small fry now in where the company goes. And the corporate really owns you. Or the venture investor who's done the deal owns you with 90% of the shares. And then, of course, they'll sell out. And you get a whole new owner and the corporate will buy you and you've only got 3% of the shares or you've cleaned out altogether. That's the way that the, that the um, 
innovator will make money though, but of course they lose the company and they very often they have to have to take all their money, put it in the bank and then retire to places like Cromwell and Queenstown and relax up there and enjoy themselves and have an easy life. <laughs> Not always though. Can I just go back to these incubators? Sure. Why, why would the incubator be a good idea? What the venture investor lacks is companionship. They've got a whole lot of advisors on board. Some of them know what they're talking about and many don't. But what they don't have is other people in the same boat as they are, facing the same problems as they face, the same marketing problems, the same pricing problems. Um, and being in an incubator means to say you can share the ideas out and talk about it over lunchtime and, and see what other people have thought should be done. And then, of course, the incubator will receive expertise from outside. If it's in a university, from within the university, if it's outside entirely, uh, if it's a bank one, then from others in the bank and so forth. And you'll learn more about some of these tricky bits. What do I think the real nasty tricky bit is as you expand? What is it? It is going into another place. Why? Because you have developed something which is super for here. Then you think, we'll make some sales by going to, and many companies in New Zealand would think Australia first step. What they don't realise is that Australia is a totally, it really is a totally different place. It's bigger scale, it's more competition, it's different people. They think of the Kiwis as, oh, Johnny-come-latelys. Um, you go over and tell them what you've got, and they say, oh, yes, we've got that, but they haven't got it, but they tell you that they have. Um, you have to take the stuff there, and that means take it by a boat or by aeroplane. You have to sell it there, which means you've got to have someone on the ground. Agents, do you have an agent? Do you appoint an agent? What do you do? How do you price it? Now, years and years ago, pricing in an overseas market was very simple. You only had to make a contribution margin. What you had to do was to cover your costs and make it a bit extra. And you made a bit extra, so it's only 10% extra, but that went straight to the profit. You covered your costs, the overheads, you covered the overheads, a little bit of overhead as well, but the rest went straight to the profit. So it was a very profitable thing to do, pop overseas and sell at the margin plus a bit. And if it was successful, of course, it grew. And if it grew, it became a bit problematical. And the dictum was, when you go to an overseas market and sell at the margin, this is the old-fashioned way of thinking about it, what you have to do is get to about a quarter of your sales, maybe a third of your sales, you know, so a third of your sales are going over to this overseas market now, and then you've got to have a totally different strategy because now it's so big in your portfolio, you have to change. You have to start to think of um, higher pricing, getting um, a much better return on your, on your sales, um, and that's not easy. So starting off low price, ending up having to be high price if you're successful is a terribly difficult thing to do. Now, people do it, but very often what they find is they need a friend over there, maybe even a corporate, who's going to bring the stuff in and handle the selling and handle the, um, the, the difficulties. And that's probably one of the better ways to go. But it's not easy. It's not easy. And I've seen companies that have gone into overseas markets with very, very high hopes and great success euchre themselves because they get the, the fundamental equations wrong. They get the balance of what they're doing here and what they're doing over there uh, completely wrong. Now, there is another way that people expand in another territory, and that is by franchising. 
And franchising is a very, very, very solid routine for a company that produces something that can be produced here, 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 here. Um, even in manufacturing, franchising is a, is a, good, a good way to go. But you have to be very canny with your franchises. What you don't want is someone who knows more about it than you do in your first branch. Can you imagine appointing someone who knows all about what you do, is even a competitor of yours, sets themselves up and starts telling you what to do? It, you know, and it can be horrible tension. What you want is someone who's a trained business person, but not perhaps necessarily in that particular routine. Right. So that they have to learn as they go. How big can you go with a franchise? The sky's the limit, absolutely the limit. But get to 30 franchises and you've got to have a franchise arrangement, agreement with them all. You've got to bring them all together and discuss how you're going to go. Some people are very successful at it. Other companies find it very difficult. But I always always think franchising, I like franchising because what it does is it releases all the small business initiative, all sometimes the entrepreneur initiative, it releases all that under control. And that's a very, it's a very good balance between what you're doing here and what you can be doing somewhere else. And franchises go overseas with great success as well. And you have your distributor uh, or reseller uh, actually funding your company Absolutely and right. giving that's you right. a margin. That's so. right. And they, they will go to the bank and they'll say, um, I'm, I'm operating, you're operating a franchise with this company from New Zealand, and uh, I need to have so much capital to get going. What do you think? And they'll look at the plan and think, it's successful in New Zealand. Let's have a look at it in Australia. It looks like it could be successful here, run by an Australian. And away we go. Mm-hmm. Yes, you can, you can raise more finance that way. It's very good, very good. Excellent. Why do I teach the MBA? I teach the MBA. Well, before, we, before we go there, though. You don't want to know about that. I, no, no, we'll come back to that for, okay. for sure. But we, we were going down the track there of, of, of different ways to fund your fast growth. And we, we certainly covered exporting and, and yes. perhaps finding an agent that way. We, 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 we talked about franchising. We talked a bit about venture capital yes. and the venture capitalists uh, uh, coming in. Uh, did we finish that conversation though? Because uh, there you are, yes. you've got this Death Valley, That's right. you're, you're, you're staring down into it, uh, cash flow and perhaps net profit, you don't know where the end is, you talk to someone who's willing to invest through that venture capital, that, that Death Valley uh, poor cash flow process, mm-hmm. what comes out the other side? Um, after the launch of the venture capital industry in New Zealand, with those two small ones both growing, things changed really quite dramatically. Because what happened was, it was an entrepreneurial initiative itself in the venture industry, which got venture capital going. It wasn't necessarily the big banks saying we ought to put some money into venture investing. It wasn't necessarily the finance houses doing it. Um, I'm thinking of people who would um, who would uh, offer loans on purchases of equipment, that kind of thing. They weren't necessarily the the, the right people in their own view to start venturing to start uh, investing in small, new, fast growth ventures. So how could it be done? Well, sometimes an overseas company would come along and put a branch in here, and a couple of American branches were founded quite early on. I don't know the details of that, but I do know that they existed. But after that, it became the property of entrepreneurial investors themselves to raise money among their friends, friendship 
capital, you might say. Um, uh, and it was a formal arrangement within the firm, but it wasn't part of a large organization. Um, and, and that's the way it got going down in Wellington. I remember Wellington people investing all through um, one of the... Uh, one of the entrepreneurs there who got things going. And then friendship capital, people funding, crowdfunding came in and you could launch things on the stock market, on a, launch things on, a, uh, uh, on the market by going to uh, Facebook and saying, who wants to invest in this brilliant new venture? And along would come some people who probably weren't very well advised in venture investing. In fact, they weren't advised at all, but they had a bit of spare money and they put it in by way of a friendship investment and that got going. I don't know that anyone knows exactly the proportions now of, of financing in New Zealand. Uh, the formal um, uh, venture capital industry is not that large. If you were to put what, uh, 300 million on it, something like that. It's, it, it would be about that as a limit. But there's lots and lots of other ways that people, starting off with family finance, uh, getting friends to put some money in, associates to put some money in, and then launching with their friends to raise more money. And, um, and that's become a routine. The success or otherwise of it, I have, I don't think anyone has figures for that. Sure. And the angel investing uh, um, side as well. And uh, perhaps we've got the seed uh, New Zealand um, uh, venture investment. Oh, yes, yes, of course. The, the government is very, very keen um, to get, continue to get more ventures going. Um, let's just look for a second at the dynamics here. How many people in a normal place like New Zealand, normal place like New Zealand, okay, abnormally normal like New Zealand, how many people would be imbued with the initiative and the intention of doing something new? I wouldn't put it any higher than 8 to 10% of the population. Sure. Sure. How many of those will actually do something new? Sure. Well, the biggest you'd expect would be a total of 3%. So 3 out of 10 will actually have a go. How many of those will succeed? 262 out of 30, 6. They will succeed. What is the result in the economy? Well, the job turnaround rate as a result of the entrepreneurs getting going is reckoned to be about 10% of the population every year. That is the amount of it. Why is it like this? It's like this because the large firms process innovating are losing jobs in proportion to their output. They're saving on their, on their, on their um, investment in people by putting in new technology. And that's an entrepreneurial thing. How fast are they losing? Well, reckoned to be about 10% lose every year. And this is a massive amount. I mean, the whole thing turns around in about 10 to 15 years. You know, it doesn't actually turn around like that because they're also hiring more people. And but the decline rate in jobs is about birch about ten percent. Where do the new jobs come from? They come from inside and outside entrepreneurship. But the numbers are small. The numbers of uh, are small because the numbers of people who succeed are small. But it takes a lot of effort to get going to replace the jobs. Are the numbers of jobs in New Zealand increasing? Yes. Does that mean to say that we're an entrepreneurial nation? Yes. Does it mean to say we're also saving on 
the large firms. Also, yes, we're just, I think we're perfectly in balance, but we do need those entrepreneurs to be doing things. And the result is going to be a 10% change in any uh, jobs, jobs circulating like this. And the person who worked all that out was a man, an interesting man called Birch in the 1980s, who went round and asked the questions in America, asked the questions of how many people to employ now, how many two years ago, how many five years ago, how many ten years ago. And he, he developed this thesis of the decline in job numbers in large firms, which is what they have to do to survive, replaced by new initiatives, either inside or outside. Um, very tantalizing. Small resource, you see. You were talking about the university. What are you doing here now? What's the MBA? What am I doing here now? What happened was the University of Otago decided it was going to be like other universities overseas and have a master's degree in business administration. When did the master's degree in business administration start? About 1904 in Harvard in America. Um, When I did the Sloan Fellowship course, which was a post-MBA course, at London Business School, they had been in the business of offering MBAs since about 1967. That's when they started off offering the MBA. When I was there at London Business School in 1970, there were, besides us 20 Stone Fellows, there were about 100 MBA students. When I went back to lecture in 1986, there were 600 MBA students. And I bet there are more now. It became the fashionable degree to do in business. What happened in, uh, in Otago? 1979, the professor of management, a man called Philip Russell, who was ex-Reed International Paper, he'd been a very big wig in that, in the human resource side, came here as the professor of management. He persuaded the university that we ought to have this MBA. And in 1979, it started with six students. And guess who did a lecture on the opening day of the First MBA taught at the University of Otago, a fellow called Richard Hyam. And what did he talk about? I talked about an experience that we'd had with a company in Otago, McSkimming Industries. What a wonderful company that was. 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 No longer exists. Why was it wonderful? It had perfected a very difficult routine making lavatory pans. Not easy because you've got two parts and they've got to fit together and you do them in one effort. And the pouring of that liquid stuff in to form the lavatory pan was an art form beyond belief. <laughs> it was. Whiskey <laughs> Industries had, had, had learnt it and they got it right and they did it right. Unfortunately, overseas, people were doing the same sort of thing with equal success but huge, huge organizations and flooding the marketplace here with cheapo lavatory pans. And this, in the end, drove Palmer Skimming Industries broke. But when we did the case study lecture, they were still going strong. And I talked about what it was to organize production for something which was extremely difficult and complex to make and then market it throughout New Zealand. 1979. Well, after that, I lectured on the MBA for each year. I was covering entrepreneurship, innovations as far as I knew it, but it was all small business at the start. How the small business survived, what the... the, Remember, people used to say, did you realize that, was it 50% of small businesses fail in the first five years? 
of small businesses fail in the first five years. Did you realize that 80% of small businesses' startups fail after five years? And this, and why, why did they fail? Oh, they ran out of money or they ran out of market or they did that or did that the other. What should we do about it? We should train them. And huge effort in training small businesses how to be good small business people was initiated by the government, and that's why they found the thing I belong to, the Business Development Centre, and that was to help small businesses because they were seedbed of all the good things in the, in, the, in the economy. What was actually happening was the decline rate of 80% was not just people going broke, 30%. It was people combining with others, being taken over. It was people who started off with two partners who couldn't stand each other, and so they'd stop and one person would take over and start again. So it was a stop, but it was a restart immediately with the same one of the two people starting. And of the 80% failure, 30 actually went broke. Of that, only about 15 were in the courts. And the rest of them were still there, but under a different name or a different format, or they belonged to someone else, and so forth. And it was a completely false statistic. It was completely wrong. And it led to enormous efforts to help the small firm. And there I was teaching how to do it because I was a small firm expert. I'd run my own small firm after ICI. 1986, 83, 86 changed all that when we realized the entrepreneur was the name of the game. And so we started teaching on the MBA here, entrepreneurship. And I remember being at Auckland University and coming down to teach the entrepreneurship classes at the MBA in this university as well as in Auckland. And we had a case study of a fast growth firm from Invercargill, which had gone in for making components, little bits of wood that would end up in chairs, and they made components for the industry. And they, a couple of brothers, Austin brothers, anyway, they started their company, I think their father started the company, and they went whoosh like that, and it was handling that fast growth. They may still be there. Up the S-curve, I I think we, this is the one that uh, I I, I attended. You did it, yes. there was over two classes, that's right, I believe. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And, but now, no longer taught. We teach the importance of being entrepreneurial and how to get the entrepreneur going and how to finance the entrepreneur and how to control the rest of them so they understand that entrepreneurship is important. But the actual technology, I don't think it's taught in the university anymore of actually handling fast, actually handling fast growth, actually getting the money together, I don't think that's taught. Um, and that was the master of entre- entrepreneurship, I think. The master of entrepreneurship. Which is what I did. Yeah. Well, the master of entrepreneurship started off as a marvellous, marvellous investment in people's time. It was terrific. Um, and I was lecturing on the MBA, on, on the master of entrepreneurship, as you will remember, for many years, using the case study to show the sort of things that actually happened in a firm like that. Um, then the directorship of the entrepreneurship of the entrepreneurship changed and it became something completely different and they didn't want me anymore and I was uh, shoved out. But I was still doing the MBA classes, right. teaching people how important entrepreneurship was in the large firm and how to handle it, but um, not teaching how to actually be the fast growth entrepreneur very sadly. Because that was a good, a good, good case study. That was it. Was a good case study. It was, it was real too. Yeah. Real. Gosh, scary, scary. And, and now you're writing the blues news. Now the blues news is completely different. What happened was <laughs> at the University of Oxford, 
Otago Rugby. Yeah, uh, I was from Oxford, first of all. Okay. What happened at Oxford was this. I went to Oxford to study greats. Greats is called greats because it was the great course. It was a great course going back into the 15 and 1600s of classical languages, literature, philosophy, history, and so forth. And if you went to Oxford, you did what was called honor moderations, which is all the languages stuff, and then you did greats, and I did greats. At Cambridge, you went there to study mathematics. The mathematics classes there ended up with people doing the examination seated on a three-legged stool called a tripos, and they still call their degree the tripos. You take the tripos at Cambridge, and you argued with the professors. And the senior wrangler was the person who got the top first. And my uncle was senior wrangler at Cambridge. We had to say he got the top first, did he got a three-legged stool? <laughs> Way back in 1920. Um, at Oxford, we did great. And, um, and I did the grace course, and I loved doing loved doing. But there was also a thing called rugby football. And four of us thought ourselves capable of playing in the second row for the Oxford University in the annual match against Cambridge. And of these four, I was one of them, two played for Scotland in the end, one played for England in the end, and I played for Bedford Rugby Club. And so I was technically the least capable, but I was the one who never got injured. Ah, what a difference. They would go on the field, they would star, star for 35 minutes, and then suddenly their leg would give way. And they'd be off the field, sadly. And they'd come back through, and I'd take over, you see, and then they'd come back three weeks later, and they'd do a wonderful job, but in scoring the final willing try against someone or other, they would break their nose and could no longer play the following week. So, it just happened that the pattern of injuries to these other three compared with me, got me in. And I went to a place called Twickenham with the Oxford University rugby football side in 1959, 60 years ago. Yes. And we knocked the stuffing out of Cambridge and we won by three penalties to one. <laughs> and I was part of it. So when I came to this university, I then afterwards played for a club and so forth, but when I came to this university, this university has a fantastic record in producing good rugby players. We boast, we don't boast anymore because our friends up at Ponsonby and we have got an agreement that we don't actually claim to have more All Blacks than anyone else has. But we have, but don't tell them. But they, they've got as many as we have actually played for the club at that time. Right. But since our players have to leave the university after three or four years and join a club, we've got that number equal to Ponsonby, but the same again playing a year later for a club. Clearly, so we count them all. Clearly much better than Ponsonby. So we count them all. Now, three years ago, oh, when I came here, I coached the Golds, which is the junior cult side, and then the Blues. Then I was such a bloody hopeless... I was a hopeless coach because all I did was to say, enjoy yourselves. And so I was the club captain, then the club president, and all the rest of it. And I went on being that until I went off to London Business School in Auckland. When I came back here in 2000... Two things happened. First of all, I went to a concert and I met a lady who'd been at Auckland University managing the MBA, 
who come down here to manage the MBA down here. And she said, what are you doing here? And I said, I've retired. No, you haven't, she said. 2001, this is. No, you haven't. Come and meet the director. So I went to meet the director, a fellow called John Burke, director of the MBA, and he put me lecturing the MBA. So I was back into lecturing the MBA here. And he was the president of the University of Otago Rugby Football Club. So right. I said, come along to the club. So I went to the club. And variously, I enjoyed helping at the club and doing behind the bar and all that sort of stuff until three years ago when I put out a one-page summary of what we'd done this week with the A's and the B's and the Colts and the women and so forth. One page with a few pictures. Unfortunately, I sent it to people who replied. If I simply filed it somewhere, it would have been safe. But I sent it to people, and the list was 50. Then it went to 100, and it grew. And then they started replying and sending in. I remember what happened in 1954. Do you remember, do you remember well, all sorts of players like Kirk? Uh, the chap who captained the old players of the World Cup, this oh, sort of thing. David Kirk. David Kirk, yes. And, um, and so on. And, and Well, I knew him, you see, because when he came here to the university, I was the club uh, captain. And we, I'll tell you something, we had a trial at which someone didn't like him very much and they hit him and flattened him. And he would lift it off. I didn't lift him off, but I supervised it being lent up against a fence over here like this, and sitting on a jersey, ah. and he completely gaga. I think it was concussion of the worst sort. And at the end of the trial, everyone left and went away, and I was leaving with my pad here, and uh, there he was still. So I went over to him and I said, are you okay? And he said, I think so, sir. And I was, sir, he'd just come from school. That was David Kirk. And winning the World Cup, that was David Kirk. Okay, so um, I'll, I'll have a link in the, in the show notes, and we'll talk about this later perhaps, how you can get onto that list. Richard, thank you so much for your time. That was very interesting. Thank you, sir. Pleasure, pleasure, real pleasure. Great fun. All opinions expressed by podcast guests and myself are solely our own opinions and do not express the opinion of anyone else. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. See you next time.